This is KJZZ News, your listener-supported public radio station. I'm Tiara Vian, and here are this week's stories you don't want to miss. Thanks so much for listening. For the week of October 31st, 2022, here are some top stories. The number of LGBTQ voters in Arizona is projected to dramatically increase in the coming years. That's according to a new report from the Human Rights Campaign Foundation and Bowling Green State University in Ohio. This shift is not just happening here, but nationally as well. As Kathy Ritchie reports, it could reshape the electoral landscape. Canix Gallo won't be voting in the upcoming elections. I am 14 years old. I'm a student at Chandler High School. I'm part of the Glisten Shine team, as well as Support Equality Arizona Schools, which is a student-led nonprofit organization. But when he turns 18... Definitely the first thing I'm ever going to do is register to vote. For now, Gallo, who's trans, is talking to the people he knows to encourage them to support candidates who won't further erode LGBTQ rights. I feel like almost everything we are fighting for just has to do with being human. Gallo is part of a wave, a wave of LGBTQ people who could, over the next 20 years, transform Arizona and even national politics. And from this report, it seems that we are queering elections. We're seeing more and more LGBTQ people not only being out, but also registering to vote. That's Madeline Edelman, a professor of justice studies in the School of Social Transformation at Arizona State University. And the report she's talking about by HRC, a pro-LGBTQ advocacy group, and Bowling Green State University is projecting that by 2040, one in five voters nationwide will identify as LGBTQ. Arizona is expected to see a similar shift, according to the report. By then, just over 19 percent of the state's voting eligible population could identify as LGBTQ. Edelman says a lot of it has to do with Generation Z, those people born in the late 90s, early 2000s. So Gen Zers are more out, more affirmative, uh, more supportive, more actively supportive of LGBTQ people in general when you compare them to the prior uh, millennials who are substantially more supportive than Gen X. They're also more aware of their rights. And they are painfully aware of the kinds of moves going on politically to remove, to quash, to minimize their and their friends and their family members' rights. Moves like the two laws that passed in Arizona this year banning gender-affirming surgery and prohibiting transgender females from participating in girls' sports. At a national level, there was Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas's concurring opinion the day Roe v. Wade was overturned, in which he wrote same-sex marriage should be reconsidered. 65-year-old Peter Taylor came out in the late 1970s. From my perspective, the social issues outweigh the financial issues because they're near and dear to my life. (laughs) Like Canix Gallo, he's increasingly worried about what could happen if, say, same-sex marriage was overturned or same-sex intimacy became illegal, which means voting for more progressive candidates. But in a place like Arizona, where Republicans have mostly dominated state politics, how will the GOP prepare for the potential rise of this voting bloc? Marcus Dell'Artino is a partner at First Strategic Communications and Public Affairs. You know, I think the report presupposes that all of these folks are single-issue voters, and that's just simply not the case, number one. Number two, I think it presupposes that they're automatically going to be, you know, Democrat votes rather than Republican votes. And he says a lot can change in 10 or 20 years. We don't know what the political battlefield will look like then, and this report is merely a projection. 
Dolartino also points to Latino voters for some context. He says for years we've heard about how Latino voters are one of the fastest growing voting blocs in the country. What I think is interesting in that is that the supposition was that, of course, all of these voters would be Democrat voters and move the needle to the left. And if you look at what's going on exactly today, the Democrat Party is actually bleeding male Hispanic voters or Latino voters to the Republican Party. Turns out Latinos are not a monolith. Neither is the LGBTQ community. Here's Edelman again. We come from all walks of life and some of us are religious and some of us have disabilities. Some of us are employed or underemployed or unemployed. But let's circle back to Gallo and Taylor, a Gen Zer and a baby boomer. What binds them is their desire to be seen as human beings with the same rights and privileges as cisgender heterosexual Americans. It also means understanding the differences that exist within the LGBTQ community. It's something that struck Taylor as he listened to Gallo talk. I'm fully behind you, and I think I think the larger LGBT community could probably do more, you know, to be pushing on your issue, on our issue. I applaud, I applaud you. As for the report... Time will tell if this is a harbinger for the future of the state of Arizona. Kathy Ritchie, KJZZ News, Phoenix. In business news, Modern Latina is a new art exhibition now open at Scottsdale Public Library. Kirsten Dorman has more about the works on display and what some featured artists say it means to be a modern Latina. Cultura, familia y arte. Culture, family, and art. Those are the key themes of the display. For me, women's art is not celebrated enough. And I mean, we've never had a all-woman Latinx show. So it's just a wonderful opportunity. That's Wendy Reisinen. She's the curator for Scottsdale Public Art. Reisinen says she wanted to go beyond surface level with this exhibition. I didn't really just want to do your basic Dia de los Muertos show. Can we do something that's a little more different that really talks about like modern life? And so the idea for the exhibition, Modern Latina, was born. We met the gal who runs Frida's Garden. Petra Fimbres is her name. Frida's Garden is an art gallery space in Phoenix with a focus on supporting the community. Through Fimbres, Reisenen says Scottsdale Public Art found many of the artists whose work is now on display as part of Modern Latina. I felt gratitude to see all these artists that we brought together to be here today. Fimbres says being a Modern Latina is not just about keeping up with the times. The other thing about Modern Latina is like, there's no limits for us. I know we're women, I know we're minorities, but that doesn't even matter. One artist whose work is on display says that for her, its strength comes from her work. Catherine Sesma is perhaps better known as La Jefa, or The Boss. I've kind of tied in my own mental health with my work and really just kind of being a boss and taking ownership of my life again and not letting trauma dictate you know, my everyday life. She says bringing bright colors and glitter to her art represents bringing light back into her life also. Her piece Viva la Vida, or Long Live Life, was inspired by Frida Kahlo. She went through a lot of trauma in her life as well um, and still came back on top and um, was a half on her own way. Her art also helps her better connect with her culture as a third-generation Mexican-American, Sesma says. I almost feel a sense of pride also in getting back to my roots and who I am and, you know, learning about where I come from and where my family comes from and who my ancestors were. 
Artist Emily Costello describes her pieces as connecting her with her cultural roots, too. But also, among the vibrant colors and imagery, she says her art holds a new way to look at things, like an abuelita's apron. They're monoprints, so it's a printing process that we actually printed up our grandmother's aprons and ran them through a press and we came up with prints. It was a collaboration I did with my friend Janet. This process makes the prints look like x-rays, Costello says, changing the way we see them. If you relate that to your own life, you know, the aprons represent our grandmothers, the influences they had in our lives, as well as the technology is a little bit more of a new technology. Costello says the exhibition highlighting Latinas is important to her. Because women matter, and we've always mattered, and I think that people are really listening to what we have to say. We are the vessels for telling the stories of our heritage. Patricia Silva says Costello's use of color and culturally significant symbols inspired her to begin creating, too. Honoring strength, family, and culture are what she says show up often in her work. So I use a lot of the flowers and the sacred heart. The heart is very important to me as well, and I always try to use either butterflies or hummingbirds in my art pieces, which symbolize my loved ones that have passed away. Silva includes a hummingbird for her father and butterflies for a lost niece and nephew. Her piece called Desert Heart or Corazón del Desierto contains all these things. The young woman in the painting reflects a hard time in Silva's own life, she says. She just symbolizes so much strength, but yet still is is showing her vulnerability. The love the woman carries in her heart, Silva says, is the love she feels for her culture. Everything that to me symbolizes my Hispanic roots, I feel is tied into this piece. As the exhibition's curator, Reisinen says she hopes the Scottsdale community will embrace what may be a new way to learn about different cultural experiences for some. Art is a communicator, and this show could be a communication between all people. Modern Latina will be open until December 31st and is free to visit. Kirsten Dorman, KJZZ News, Phoenix. And this is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. Thanks for listening. In education news, Arizona Superintendent of Public Instruction Kathy Hoffman is calling on legislators to take immediate action to raise the constitutional spending limit for schools by 18 percent. While lawmakers approved a budget that is about $7.8 billion, schools will only be able to spend $6.4 billion without legislative approval. House Speaker Rusty Bowers said he's willing to bring legislators back to the Capitol before the next session starts in January, but he's not optimistic about support. House Minority Leader Democrat Reginald Bolding. This legislature is the one that approved the spending, so this legislature needs to be the one that, you know, approved the spending limit. Hoffman is running to be reelected for her position. Republican rival Tom Horn said he agrees with her in this case. In Fronteras News. More than a year ago, the U.S. evacuated tens of thousands of Afghans from their country after U.S. troops withdrew and Taliban forces took control. Among them, more than two dozen women from a special Afghan platoon that worked alongside the U.S. military. But as Elisa Resnick reports from our Fronteras desk, getting out of Afghanistan was only the beginning. Packed into a crowd waiting for an evacuation flight at the Kabul airport in August 2021, a young woman was thinking about her family. I called my parents and I said, I'm, I'm sorry because I didn't s- saw you guys and uh, I'm ready to go. I'm leaving Afghanistan. 
She'd been in the Afghan military for five years by then, including three with an elite all-women unit called the Female Tactical Platoon, or FTPs for short. Her parents had a hard time accepting her job. She'd left university to pursue it, and they worried about her. That call was the first time A heard her dad cry. I'm sorry. And he said, I love you. Talking about it now, in a Tempe apartment she shares with other former soldiers, A's brown eyes are glossy too. We're not using her full name because some of her family is still in Afghanistan. They're Hazara. It's an ethnic and religious minority group that faces an even greater threat under Taliban rule. She says talking about her work could put them in more danger. I I was in love with my job. A is just over five feet tall with a round face and straight hair pulled into a bun. As an FTP, she joined U.S. and Afghan special forces on high-intensity night missions, questioning Taliban fighters and people thought to be connected to them. The female platoon did what male soldiers culturally could not, search and speak to women and kids. It's what made A a specific target when Taliban forces took over last year. We assumed that the FTPs would be part of the operation to evacuate. That's Bill Richardson. He's a Marine veteran in Phoenix whose daughter worked alongside A with the U.S. military. But then we discovered that they were not part of the discussion. There was no mention of them. They weren't on anybody's radar. Richardson and others helped get 39 women out last year. They're spread out across the U.S. now, safe but also stuck, here on temporary immigration status with no clear path to citizenship. Richardson says he's watched A apply for almost a dozen different jobs, from bagging groceries to working in fast food. She hasn't been hired yet. She wants to be a nurse. She wants to go back into the military and fly helicopters. You know, this is the land of opportunity, and they get the door slammed in their faces. Since they were part of the Afghan army, they also can't apply for the special visas afforded to Afghans who work for the U.S. A bill that could change that is stalled in Congress, and asylum could take years. Rebecca Edmondson, a U.S. Army veteran, says it's a weight that's especially hard for these servicewomen. You know, the fact that they went from rappelling out of helicopters under night vision, conducting these very high-profile operations. Now they're here, labeled as refugees. Edmondson long worried this day would come. She trained the first platoon class more than 10 years ago and continued working with them during her four tours in Afghanistan. Generally, we have people access to things, whereas these women didn't, but they took a very, very unique opportunity a very dangerous opportunity, but they stepped up to the challenge and they, they thrived in that position. She says she wants to make sure the women have a way to move forward in the U.S. She's helping secure funding for English classes and other training for the platoon. It's been a slow process. This is picture from me. A paused her English studies at ASU earlier this year. Funding got tight. Plus, she says... News from Afghanistan consumed her focus. And these are your siblings? Mm-hmm. My mom and me. She has a collection of framed photos of her family and work from back home that she keeps tucked away in her closet, along with a shiny Afghan flag. She says having them out just brings a rush of painful memories. My job was to take care of the people and work for my country and help my country and do Unfortunately, when I think about it, it makes me very sad and very angry. 
because I cannot do anything for people in Afghanistan, for, especially for the woman. Still, she says she's moving forward. She'll pick up her English classes again next year, and she wants to get her pilot's license one day. It feels like the closest thing to the work she once loved. Elisa Resnick, KJ's Easy News, reporting from Phoenix. And this is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. In Tribal Resources, which is supported in part by a grant from the Katina Foundation. A number of residents in the Rio Verde foothills community outside of Scottsdale recently learned that their water supply was in jeopardy. But a temporary solution could be in the works with water from an Arizona tribe. Ron Dungan has more. Although some Rio Verde residents have wells, several get their water chucked in from Scottsdale. But the city of Scottsdale plans to cut off that supply as it adjusts to a water shortage on the Colorado River. The San Carlos Apache tribe has offered to make 65 million gallons of its Central Arizona project water available while Rio Verde works out a long-term solution. Dynamite Water is a private water company that serves the area. It said the water would be purchased at twice the rate it's paying Scottsdale, but cost to residents would remain at their current level, with possible adjustments for inflation. Ron Dungan, KJZZ News, Phoenix. In science news. Yosemite Valley has occupied a prominent place in environmentalism, tourism, and the study of landforms. Estimates of when it formed have ranged from 2 million to more than 50 million years ago. But a lack of clear clues have made narrowing that gap impossible until now. From our Arizona Science Desk, Nicholas Gerbis reports. Scientists use known rates of radioactive decay to turn certain minerals into a type of geological clock. Here, the authors used helium, released as a byproduct of uranium and thorium decay in certain grains of granite. Lead author Kurt Cuffey of UC Berkeley says helium only lingers in those minerals under certain temperatures, and those temperatures change as erosion uncovers the rock. The radiometric clock does not turn on until a certain temperature has been crossed, and the retention of the helium varies a lot with the temperature. Comparisons of those clocks with other areas in Yosemite suggest the Deep Canyon likely formed in the last five million years. The research appears in the Geological Society of America Bulletin. Nicholas Gerbis, KJZZ News, Phoenix. And finally, in KJZZ Original Productions. How about a concert? Here's the latest Tiny Desert concert from KJZZ's The Show. Here's co-host Lauren Gilger. Taylor Glasheen has always played music, always written songs, always performed here and there. But when the pandemic hit, she decided to finally take the plunge into the music industry in a real way. She went to Nashville to record her debut album, Tip Me a Dollar, with an all-star slate of players. It is a heartbreaking tribute to country music with an outlaw note. And it has launched her into the Phoenix music scene and beyond. She recently played a few of those songs for us at The Dirty Drummer in Phoenix and sat down with me to talk more about her music, her love of Phoenix, and her very musical upbringing. Both my parents were in the Air Force, and uh, we kind of moved around a lot when I was a kid, but then we settled here in 1995, and I grew up in Phoenix, just roaming around the desert the whole time, you know, (laughs) having a good old time. What are the ways in which music sort of intersected with your family life? Was it holidays? Was it a Tuesday night? Was it all the time? What's it like? It was all the time. It was all the time. Like if we were having dinner, there was music playing. If, um, you know, we were cleaning, windows are open. Like there's certain themes that we would, you know, we'd have a lot of Paul Simon during cleaning just Mm -hmm. to kind of bring up the mood a little bit. And um, definitely a lot of family gatherings. There was a lot of John Prine and, you know, Chris Christopherson playing. Uh, I have a family full of musicians and, 
you know, everyone would just pick up a guitar. We had a piano and Uncle Tim would be on guitar. Holly would be playing the piano. My dad would be attempting to sing. <laughs> um, sometimes well, sometimes not so well, depending on how late the night went. But uh, yeah, we always just had music playing around, you know. Do you remember learning to play music or learning to write music? Or was this something you just always did? Yeah. So my dad kind of notoriously would just sit me on his lap and then put the guitar over us huh. and he'd play the chords and he'd give us the pick and we'd just kind of strum along and then we'd sing, you know, whatever song. I thought that he wrote Tangled Up in Blue. I thought that was his song <laughs> and it would like be playing on the radio and I'd be like, dad, your song is on the radio. And he just kind of chuckle and just he let that roll <laughs> he would let it roll yeah so are those where a lot of your musical influences come from from your childhood yeah definitely um my mom she's from new york uh so she gave me a lot of you know a lot of disco and mm. you know raised with prince and you know shaka khan things like that and my dad's from wisconsin and so he's like kind of the country boy uh hard working and yeah so you've always been writing songs. It sounds like you've always been playing. So tell us about what happened recently. This became less of a hobby, more of a career. Yeah, I would kind of pick up a couple of shows around town, you know, just never really took it seriously. And then the pandemic hit and uh, I was like, all right, I have all this time on my hands. Let's go ahead and try and see what I can do with this. So I uh, went out to Nashville, recorded an album and here we are. <laughs> so I mean, there's there's something that happened in between there, right? Like you, you you can't just go to Nashville and record an album. I mean, like, how did this happen? That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, in a perfect world. Yeah. <laughs> um, no. So uh, my girlfriend, she's from Nashville mm -hmm. and uh, she's actually in the music industry as well. She does a lot of uh, tour managing and uh, has a band of her own. And I was going to record here and she was like, you're going to record, you're coming to Nashville <laughs> and I'm going to have all of my, my friends hop on. And so she really just got like a, a full all-star cast on the, on the album. So this is the first time you've ever been in a studio and you show up with, you know, some of the best studio musicians in Nashville. <laughs> no pressure. Yeah. What was this no like? Pressure. Yeah. Talk um, about it. It was cool. You know, everyone, everyone in Nashville, what's nice is everyone has such a love for music. Hmm. So like anybody coming in, they really just my experience, they welcome you with open arms, you know, and um, they just really, really knocked it out of the ballpark with that one. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so were there moments in that process where you said, what am I doing here? Or was this intimidating to you in any way? Um, I mean, yeah, for sure. <laughs> there's there's definitely moments where it's just like you hear a certain like Robbie would just he'd hop on the drums and he just do, 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 do. And I'm just <laughs> like, all right, I'm playing GCD. You're going crazy, <laughs> man. Uh, but yeah, it all just really melded together really nicely. Yeah. I want to go back to that moment. You said the pandemic sort of pushed you to say, I'm going to record an album, you know, finally. It sounds like after a long time of writing and playing. Um, what was that like? What happened? What, what were you feeling and thinking? Um, so I was lucky enough, like right at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, to go through a breakup. Hmm. And um, Always good for songwriting. Yeah, it really <laughs> is. I tell you what, thanks for that one. Uh, but so I had a lot of time on my hands, just like a lot of time to think like, all right, this is a big transitional point in my life, in my personal life, in the world, you know, mm -hmm. what's, what would I want to be doing with my time? And, uh, do I want to be staring at four walls or just kind of make of it what I will? And I decided to make of it what I will. And here we are. <laughs> I mean, that takes a certain kind of person, right? To not sort of give in to the the despair of the moment and maybe of what's happening in your personal life, but to say... Oh, I did. Um, <laughs> I did give in to the despair of the moment. Still working on turning around, but just uh, 
leaning a little bit more into the hobby. All right, so let's have you play a song for us now. What's this one? Uh, so this song is called Marcella. It's basically a song about, you know, falling in love, and even if the, the love ends, it, it still does continue, and I guess this is more so about the, the haunting side of that thing. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I'm lonely And other times I drink But when I think of you It's at the same time So what you thinking, baby? You won't look at me love to hear what's on your mind so the streets are empty same as my sheets and ever since you left babe they've been on fire Marcella She's a pretty lady She ain't gonna knock upon my door Marcella She always drove me crazy She ain't coming round these parts anymore Sleep in motels Breakfast comes for free It's all you can drink coffee to get by My friends, they call me They recommend in sleep But I just can't get her out of my Marcella, she's a pretty lady. She ain't gonna knock upon my door. Marcella, she always drove me. I will always 
hearts anymore. What do you love about performing, about being on stage and in places like this and, and all over? Yeah, definitely with performing, it's, uh, it's connecting with everyone that's there. You know, it could be a room of 300 people. It could be a room of two. Mm. And um, I think if you play right and if you're, you're singing about things that people can relate with, um, there's a lot of magic that can happen with a live set. Yeah. You know? Are there moments that stick out in your mind, like shows when you've said, oh, this is why I love this? Yeah. Um, I remember it was... Uh, so when we had first moved here, my dad took me to uh, a place called Fiddler's Dream. It's a little coffee shop on like 51 and Northern and um, they would do open mic nights. Mm. Uh, and that was one of the first places I ever saw live music in Phoenix. Then years down the line, before I had released the album or even it was a twinkle in my eye, the album, they asked me to like do a, a set there. Mm. And um, it was very cool to have my dad sit in the audience of the first venue that he took me to and then for me to be playing there. And then uh, just to kind of see that come full circle there, Yeah, you know. Let me ask you about playing in Phoenix, about um, being a musician here. It's sort of a, a new and a growing, I think, music scene. Do you want to stay here? Do you want to go off to Nashville where, you know, you recorded the album and, and, and where there is much more infrastructure for this? <laughs> Phoenix is my home. Yeah. Yeah, I love Phoenix. Um, I, I am very confident I will die here, you know, uh, <laughs> in, in a light that's not to be dark, but uh, it's just, you know, my roots are here and definitely I'll I'll be traveling around you know mm. always on the road but this is definitely where I want to lay my head for sure all right so let's have you take us out on a song then which one do you have for us uh the next one's gonna be tulips and uh that's a little nod to Waylon Jennings and kind of when you miss someone late at night or early in the morning and just thinking about them And there are many, many more videos, interviews, and fresh local music at tinydesertconcert.kjzz.org. This has been the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast, made possible in part by Helios Education Foundation and Alliance Bank, the Vitalist Health Foundation, the Intel Corporation and Beach Fleischman, the Arizona Community Foundation, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Thank you for listening to KJZZ and for your generous support. I'm Tiara Vianne, and this is KJZZ, your news and information station.